Today's episode is brought to you by Iman Quota's Bride of the Sea, a spellbinding debut of colliding cultures, immigration, religion, and family, and an intimate portrait of loss and healing. At the core of the novel is Hanadi, a young girl who has grown up with her mother in the U.S., but is yet to know her father, though he has desperately searched for her for years from his home in Saudi Arabia. Hanadi's mother has kept her hidden from him out of fear of losing her daughter. Quota's deft characterization and pacing, says Booklist in a starred review, combined with an inside look at Saudi Arabian life, make this debut a compelling and worthy read. Rakesh Satyal calls the book a marvel, an intricately realized novel that honors every place it depicts. Bride of the Sea is out on January 26th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm excited to share today's episode with the incredible Nidhi Okorafor, which we've somehow perfectly timed with the launch date of our new novella, Remote Control. But before we begin, I want to share something with you that I've been waiting to share for this specific episode. If you've listened to the show before, you know there are all sorts of potential benefits to becoming a listener supporter. Whether it be receiving an email with each episode, pointing you to things referred to in the conversation, or particularly interesting things I discovered in preparing for it that would be worth exploring after the conversation, or the bonus audio archive, which has included everything from Ted Chang reading an essay exploring our fear of superintelligent AI, to Daniel Jose Older giving a gripping reading from Shadow Shaper Legacy prior to its release, to an hour-long craft talk by none other than Marlon James on the art of narrative seduction, to getting books like the Hugo Award finalist and Locus Award-winning Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, signed by me, co-author with Ursula, of this book. And you also know that writers, since the fall, have been reaching out to offer things to support the fundraising push for Between the Covers, from Ricky Ducournay with Borges-inspired prints to handcrafted collectibles by Nikki Finney. But there's one thing that I've been waiting to let you know about until today, and that is an amazing offer from the estate of Ursula K. Le Guin of three of her out-of-print chapbooks from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You could definitely say this is Le Guin marginalia, but marginalia of the best sort. Incredibly charming, funny works that reveal something new about Ursula's personality. The first is an illustrated poetry collaboration between Ursula and Ursula's mother that came out in 1979 called Talai and Tylisos. The second is a comedic illustrated collaboration between Ursula and Vonda McIntyre, signed by both writers, called A Winter Solstice Ritual for the Pacific Northwest. And the third, also very funny and whimsical, and also like the first two illustrated, is called The Art of Bunditsu, 
How to Arrange Your Bonzo, a form of Japanese Tabist meditation that is a celebration of cats, of her cat, and appears to be possibly co-written with her cat at the time in the early 80s. So long story short, if you're curious about any of this, large or small, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers, and you can look through everything and consider supporting between the covers. Lastly, just a brief moment on spoilers for this episode. We use Nettie's book, Remote Control, out today as the launching pad to discuss everything from her work with Black Panther, to the Binti trilogy, to Akata Witch, to her work with Dark Horse Comics, LaGuardia. And most of what we talk about regarding remote control happens within the first third of the novella. And we do try to focus more on the details of the world than the developments of the plot. But everyone has their own threshold around this. So if you are someone particularly concerned about spoilers, I would suggest stopping more or less around 35 minutes, grab a copy of the book from Tor, read it, it's only 150 pages long, and come back for the bulk of the conversation without anxiety. Otherwise, for everybody else, enjoy today's program in full with Nettie Okorafor. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is author Nnedi Okorafor, a writer of countless books of African futurism and African Jujuism, the terms she herself coined for her work within the realms of science fiction and fantasy, respectively. With a master's degree in journalism from Michigan State, a master's degree in English and a doctorate in English from the University of Illinois in Chicago, Nettie Okorafor is also a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop, the oldest and most esteemed workshop for writers in science fiction and fantasy. Her 2005 book of young adult fantasy, Zara the Windseeker, was the winner of the Wallace Sayinka Prize for African Literature, awarded biennially to the best literary work produced by an African. Her children's book, Chicken in the Kitchen, won the Africana Book Award. Her young adult novel, Akata Witch, was an Amazon Best Book of the Year, and Akata Warrior won the Locus Award for Best Young Adult Novel. Neil Gaiman said of the series, The sheer joy of something like the Akata series is the feeling that I simply have not read this before, and that is so rare. 
Among her many books for adults, Okorafor won the World Fantasy Award for Best Novel for Who Fears Death, and she joined Past Between the Covers guest Daniel Jose Older in successfully calling for the removal of H.P. Lovecraft as the likeness of the statue given to the winners. Her book Binti with Tor Books, the first of the Binti trilogy, won both the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award for Best Novella. She recently published her memoir, the Locus Award finalist, Broken Places and Outer Spaces, about being a nationally known athlete in tennis and track, and someone who aspired to be an entomologist, an insect scientist, suddenly finding herself paralyzed, a rare outcome to a surgery for scoliosis, and the ways losing the path she thought she was on became the beginnings of her journey, not just to walk again, but as a writer. If all of that was not enough, Nettie Okorafor has also been quite involved in the world of comics. Following Tanahasi Coates and Roxane Gay, Okorafor joined Marvel to work on Black Panther, Long Live the King, Wakanda Forever, and the Shuri series, and she developed the African futurist comic LaGuardia for Dark Horse Comics, the winner of both this year's Hugo Award and Eisner Award for Best Graphic Story or Comic. Ursula K. Le Guin has said of Okorafor's writing, There's more vivid imagination in a page of Nettie Okorafor's work than in whole volumes of ordinary fantasy epics. And like Le Guin, with her well-known cat, Pard, Okorafor has a famous cat familiar herself. Pumpernickel, Pickle, Periwinkle, Chukwu, Okorafor, the space cat, who likely has more followers than you do on Twitter. If after hearing all of this, a mere sampling of the books and comics and awards in Okorafor's career, you wonder where you've been, I suspect it won't be long before Nettie Okorafor is a household name. Her novel, Who Fears Death, is in development at HBO to become a series produced by George R.R. Martin. Okorafor is co-writing the adaptation of Octavia Butler's Wild Seed for Amazon Prime Video to be directed by Kenyan film director and author Wanuri Kahiu and produced by Viola Davis. And she's adapting her Binti trilogy into a TV series for Hulu, co-writing the pilot with Stacey Osei-Kufour, the writer for HBO's Watchmen. So if you aren't already living in an Okoraforian universe, you're likely about to be, which makes us particularly lucky to have Nettie Okorafor here today for her newest novella, Remote Control, just out from Tor. Library Journal, in its starred review, says, Okorafor builds a stunning landscape of futuristic technology and African culture with prose that will grab readers from the first sentence. The protagonist, Sankofa, is at once innocent and experienced, facing a world forever changed for and by her. This compelling novella is African futurism science fiction at its best. Publishers Weekly in its start review adds, following a common trend in Okorafor's work, this imaginative, thought-provoking story uses elements of the fantastic to investigate the complexities of gender and community outside of a European colonial imagination. Readers will be blown away. Welcome to Between the Covers, Nettie Okorafor. 
Thanks for having me. So recently on social media, you've been talking about a variety of ways that people inaccurately frame your work. One of them is incorrectly calling some of your adult books YA simply because they center a, a child protagonist. Another was that um, people keep repeating that your stories are rooted in or focused on racial oppression simply because they center black people and especially black women, even though your stories don't always or mainly focus on racial oppression, including the book we're going to discuss today, Remote Control. But the place I want to start today in our conversation is another one of your misconceptions that you are battling against. Uh, and that is your work is often called Afrofuturist. Even after you pointed out that it is an Afrofuturist, it returns to be called Afrofuturist over and over again. And you've gone to great lengths to clarify this. Um, you've coined the terms African futurism and African Jujuism. You've written an essay to define these terms that's been read 30,000 times. And yet you're still, um, I think, at the beginnings of this this battle to to have this term um, change the conversation. So you've, you've said that you're tired of talking about this, but that it's important to repeat it. And so I was hoping we could just establish the grounds of our conversation today with you talking about Afrofuturism versus African futurism and why the distinction is a vital one when it comes to your body of work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very important and it's, um, and yeah, I have been, this is an ongoing battle. Uh, it is about changing the conversation and expanding the conversation. Um, and I, and I think that that's really important. Uh, if we need to be blunt about it, it's, it's about looking at, uh, black speculative fiction and understanding that it is it is diverse. It is not something where you can put us all in in one category. That like and 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 in doing that, reducing us all so that we all fit in that category and so that we all are similar. Like I'm talking like science fiction, fantasy, like every, everything is thrown in there, and it's 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 very reductive. So like. Like I think the distinction, the 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 most important part for me is the the, the um, opening up a conversation. That was, and it's kind of similar to how I felt when I was talking about Lovecraft in the with the World Fantasy Award. That whole issue, I wasn't so focused on getting the statue changed as I was about starting a conversation because I think that conversation leads to um, leads to a, an understanding that I can't put like, like only me, I cannot cause that understanding. I can only like, I can start it, but I can't cause people to understand. So, so this distinction is really about that. It's, it's really about um, getting people to think bigger, um, more globally. Um, and, and just with a, with a, a greater important diversity, because I think that as long as we don't do that, I think that all the stories, not just mine, but all of our stories by Black people in speculative fiction are being reduced. They're being misread. You're not seeing everything about these stories that makes each and every one of them special. And just to stay with that a moment longer, is part of that reduction the erasure of African-centric speculative and fantastical fiction because when you use the Afrofuturist label, because it's centering 
Black American experience? I think that there's a redirecting going on, a redirecting of what is important and what is significant and what is leading the way when there are multiple things leading the way. It's not just one, it's not just one group of people. Um, I can't say, and, and, and mind you, when it comes to like this, the African identity, I don't even fit that. I'm Nigerian American, you know? I, I'm not a, uh, by, like by the most solid, um, clear definition of, of being African American, I don't fit that. You know, my parents came here in 1969 as immigrants from Nigeria. So I don't, I am not the direct descendant of slaves, um, of, of stolen Africans, I prefer. I don't like the term slaves. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't born and raised in Nigeria either. So I'm not that either. So I'm like, this is, so when I'm having these conversations, I'm speaking as somebody who's just, I don't fit like anything solidly. And I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm perfectly fine with that. So like, I think that, and I think that uh, my, my point of view of not fitting in anywhere, I think that helps me to be able to see things more clearly and understand things more clearly from sort of an outsider insider, um, outsider insider point of view. So I think there, so I think that, that, you know, this, this idea of redirecting, um, I, I just my whole, my whole thing is really about changing, the, changing the narrative and just opening, opening it up a lot more because um, I just think it's really important. I just think it's really important. I think it's important in how stories are read. Like if you're only seeing one point of view, here's an example. And if this gets me in trouble, fine, it is what it is. But like in the United States, you often hear um, white people will describe black people as African-Americans. Every single black person in the world, like somebody who has never even set foot in the United States will be called, oh, they're African-American. I'm like, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, someone's born and raised in London, for example, Idris Elba is not African-American, for example. You know, someone who's born over the, you know, it's just, it's, and, and, and doing that, you're reducing a people in a way that I think is very problematic. Mm. And I think that like the, the, the issue with um, African futurism and Afrofuturism, what I'm bringing up is touching on that. It's a, it's a microcosm of a much broader issue. Well, you've talked before about a different relationship to technology that Nigerians have that you discovered in your frequent trips going there as a child, growing up um, uh, as a child of Nigerian immigrants to the United States, how places that without running water or electricity might still be ahead of us with innovative ways that they're using cell phones or, or people um, building computers from scrap or running them off of generators. And I was thinking about your comic LaGuardia where aliens come to earth, not to attack us or dominate us, but they actually want to, to get along and participate in human culture. And there's this wide variety of responses from country to country on how that's being received, but it's Nigeria that welcomes them where they establish first contact and this made me think of a video I watched of, of the Kenyan film director, Winuri Kihiu. And, and in that video, she said, she's a science fiction filmmaker, and she, she balks at the idea that science fiction is a relatively new phenomenon on the African continent. And she said that science fiction and fantasy are actually extremely old 
in Africa, that nearly everywhere she has been on the continent has cultures that looked to space, that have seers that look into the future, that have storytellers who tell stories from the perspective of insects or animals or birds. And you've said that many of your early stories that were called by others science fiction and fantasy were simply you describing the way things actually were in the Nigerian way of life and worldview. And I was just hoping you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to say is, is that I, it's not so much that, that I viewed that, uh, that Nigerians, for example, were ahead in their view of technology. It's more like it was a, a different point of view. It's a different point. Like their, their, their way of viewing or what, from what I was seeing was from a different, um, you know, it was a different point of view that I didn't think was, was being um, portrayed, but yeah, this whole, and, and it comes back to this, idea of point of view, perspective, worldview, and, and then the, the question of, of, um, of not what is science fiction, but has science fiction existed uh, beforehand, like be- before the, the golden age in the West. And it's, it's all about point of view. It's all about point of view. It's all about the way that you look. It, it's, it depends on the way that you, you view things. Um, there's that issue of point of view where you know, in one point of view, the, the mystical and the magical are separate from the mundane. You know, that's the more Western point of view. That's it. To have something mystical or magical is odd. It's, it's bizarre. It's, um, it's, it's not the norm, you know, so, or you go to the magical world. Whereas in other cultures, to have the mystical and the mundane worlds coexisting is normal. You know, and, and that's and that was like the 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 issue that pops up when when people talk about magical realism and the fact that ma- the label of magical realism is put typically on cultures that are on non-Western cultures, and it's more that their the, these cultures their point of view is different is is simply different, and so this idea of science fiction existing like um that that. Africans like it, it, that science fiction didn't exist in African culture um, is it's a matter of point of view. If you look at it from this point of view over here, which is from that culture's specific point of view and what they're used to dealing with and the way they've been going, sure, you're not going to see any science fiction. But when you kind of deconstruct that and then look at look at things through a different point of view, you'll see that that's been there for a long time. It's just been in a way that you can't that you haven't been able to process yet because you've been looking at something through a very um, specific point of view. So would it be correct to say that the magical society in Akata Witch isn't a Nigerian analog to Harry Potter because it's based on an actual people in Nigeria, the leopard people, and thus it is this, is that an example of the mystical and the seemingly fantastical and the real and the realistic being the same yeah. thing at the same time, essentially. Yeah. It's, it's like, and, and that's the thing. That's why I get so irritated when that comparison is made because that's what I mean by that reductive thinking because, okay, I'm familiar with Harry Potter and I'm not familiar with what's going on in the Katowicz. And I understood that because like, I haven't read, I don't really know where I've read anything that was like a Katowicz where we, you know, we took these, these ideologies and cosmologies and then built something in sort of this, this kind of uh, 
African jujuist type of narrative. So, so you've got something that's unfamiliar. You know, even, even Nigerians were unfamiliar with what I was doing. And I knew that, and I'm okay with that. You know, things have to start somewhere. But like, so you've got something that's unfamiliar. So the, the way that's problematic for me when people react to something unfamiliar is by looking at it through what's familiar. And that's what a lot of people are. Um, it makes things easier. You're more comfortable. Okay, you're like, okay, we can compare. Well, it's like this, you know? So, oh, okay, so Akata Witch is like a Nigerian Harry Potter. I can get that. I can understand that because Harry Potter, I love Harry Potter and it's familiar to me. So therefore, now I can understand Akata Witch because I understand Harry Potter. There's something, I, I understand the inclination to think like that, but there, but that way of thinking will prevent you from ever really seeing beyond what you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so like, like with, with a Kata, which, yeah, I'm sure there are comparisons to Harry Potter, you know, but there are aspects of it that you're not going to see. As soon as you say it's like, it's a Nigerian Harry Potter, you're not going to see what I was doing with night with, um, um, Nigerian cosmologies in particular Igbo, but like I was working, I worked in some Yoruba and Hausa in there too, but like, but, but with these Nigerian ideologies and cosmologies and how I was flipping some of them and how I was growing some of them and exaggerating some of them and just having a lot of fun and dealing with those things that are taboo, you're not gonna see any of that because you're gonna be thinking, oh, Harry Potter. So it's magic, you know, <laughs> magic, this general term, it's magic. Right which just makes everything, it just reduces everything. And, and there, there's so much in the Akata series that like that people actually believe in, that I was messing with, that's actually really powerful. And I was taking some chances and playing around with it, you know? So yeah, when you, it, it, when you kind of make those comparison things, it's, it's um, you're gonna see, you're gonna see what you're familiar with. Yeah. You know, I, there have been stories where I've read them and I did not have any of those those lenses. I didn't view those things with any of those lenses. And I read it and experienced something huge and incredible. And then I talked to other people and they looked at it through those lenses and it was so boring what they described. It's just like, oh, they're using these kind of tropes and this kind of theme. And I've seen all that before. And, and you end up just seeing what, you're already, what you've already seen, which is a shame. Yeah. Well, well moving to remote control more specifically, mm -hmm. You've said that you started the the book with the main character, Sankofa, in mind. And that also this character is someone you've been working on and in various forms and ways over time. So I was hoping you could we could start our conversation about remote control with Sankofa and what about her as a character has captured your imagination across book as you've sort of worked out this this particular protagonist yeah i've been i've been writing sankofa for a long time i mean i think i've worked at two different universities and left <laughs> i've left two different universities in the time that i was that i've been working on even i think it was even before the first uh um before 2008 i've been working on her for a long time and not just in remote control she's I, I discovered her in the part two of the shadow speaker because I've written a I wrote a part two of the shadow speaker and I discovered her in that and she's just kind of state like I really liked her character I really liked her and um and so then I kind of plucked her out 
and then started writing remote control. And what's interesting about remote control is I've been, that book in that book in particular, I've been working on for over six years and it was a whole novel. And then I realized, and I, and I kept, and I worked on that for like four years and I'm like, and then I got to a point where after editing and editing and making it perfect and getting feedback from my editor, she's like, this isn't working, this isn't working. I looked at it and I realized that I had written two, I'd written two books as one, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I chopped it and that's how I got the novella. Cause once I, once I chopped it literally down the middle, literally, um, it just, it worked, it worked perfectly. And so I've been, you know, Sankofa, is, you know, I've just been following her for a lot. Like, I know her really well. I know like so many, so many details about her and she's. Um... Is the character in the Book of Phoenix who also is from Wulugu, Ghana, and also is discovers a magic seed from an unusual tree. Um, is that one example of the way you're sort of working out this character, even though they have different names um, that you're sort of like playing with the variables of a protagonist that you can't let go of in a sense? Actually, Book of Phoenix happens after remote control. Like it's the same place. And it's like, there. and, and the way that I view it is that it's, this is going to sound weird, but like um, there are three, three sisters you know, and the first sister is Sankofa, the second sister is Phoenix, and the third sister is Onesomu and Who Fears Death. Like all three, and the way that I wrote them, it was, it was backwards because I wrote, you know, I wrote Who Fears Death first and then went back and then, um, and then the Book of Phoenix and then went back and then it was re remote control. So it's like three sisters and, and they're, they're, not, they're not the same character, but like each of the things that they do affects the world of the next one. Yeah. You know, so what Sankofa does um, affects affects the world of of the Book of Phoenix. And I know that like so when I arrived there, I already knew what was going to happen in that area. So that definitely informed who Sankofa was and the world that Sankofa was living in as well. So it's like there is. Yeah, there's definite connection. But there but they are two different. Um, Interesting. Uh, two different characters. Yeah. 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 Well, well let me ask you a, a writer's question about the setting because you've called Nigeria your your muse and a lot of your work draws on Nigerian influences but your your Binti trilogy moves to the Himba tribe of Namibia and remote control centers around a, a Muslim family in rural Ghana and I wondered if there were extra considerations or safeguards you do when you're moving from a culture that is your own to these other African cultures for instance I was thinking of when I was talking with N.K. Jemison about her most recent book, she mentioned that she used a sensitivity reader for the portrayal of particularly the indigenous character in the city we became, but also for other characters. And is there anything that you do that you add into your regimen when you're moving from your lived experience with Igbo culture in Nigeria to other cultures in Ghana or Namibia or elsewhere on the continent? Yeah, I think the, the difference is like, even when it comes to like my my muse, it's not just Nigeria. It tends to be the south the southeast. It's like a specific area, and so if I you know whenever I write outside of those areas, if I write you know for example a, a Yoruba character, um, 
there is what I take for like the way that I handle that. I like to just talk to people who are of that culture and I like to run things by them. Um, and it's not so much I interview them. It's not an interview. It's just, you know, they're typically, and if I'm writing about, I haven't yet written about an area that I have zero connection to, like zero. You know, I always have either some friends who are of that character or I can, you know, run something by them or I know them well enough where I've listened to them. So I haven't even had to interview them specifically, like with um, in uh, Who Fears Death, you know, we had to deal with uh, female genital mutilation. I know people who have had it done. I've had to hear about, you know, the repercussions of that for a long time, way before I wrote the book. So I had that connection already. It comes to genocide, you know, I'm Igbo and we have the, the Biafran war. So it's like, there's, I always have some kind of direct connection to everything that I'm, that I'm writing about so that I kind of avoid that feeling of, Ooh, I'm not really, yeah. you know, I don't really know this area that well. And so I haven't, um, I have, I have yet to really write about, cause I know lots of Ghanaians and, and I definitely had to talk about Wulugu. Like I haven't been there, but I had to talk to people who have been there. So I get a real feel. Cause there's, you can do as much research as you want, but you can't, there's no, nothing that can, um, that can compete with either a firsthand experience of someone who's been there, who's smelled the air, who's touched the soil, who's eaten the food, who's heard the, you know, seen all the, just whatever happens there. Um, and also being there physically, being there physically is the number one thing for me. If I can get there, if I'm writing about the desert, I have to be in the desert. I've been in the Sahara desert. I've felt the 114 degree heat. I know what it feels like. I know what it smells like all of that. I have to get those details, but that's, that's the most, um, that's what I like to do when I, when it comes to, when it comes to research, it's like the, 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 um, reading of books and all of that, it just doesn't work for me. It has to be like, I have to have a in-person um, contact. And even when I, when I wrote about um, in Lagoon, I wrote about a, there was, there was a character who had to ride a manatee. And I was like, oh, I got an, I don't know what a manatee feels like. I don't know what a manatee feels like. And, and so the closest I could get was a beluga whale, like touching. <laughs> so I actually- <laughs> You touched, touched one? A beluga whale, <laughs> yeah. It was firm, but soft. Their, their <laughs> forehead, you know, and I know all the issues about beluga whales and captivity. So whoever's listening to this, I know, I know, but yeah, so I, that's how far I will go. If I'm, if I'm writing about something, I, I have to get as close to it as possible because I, I don't feel comfortable writing about something that I, that I haven't, um, that I haven't touched either through a person or um, literally. Well, but you've, you've talked about how you're, you're interested not just in technology, but particularly in how technology is affected by culture. So not just the way technologies are invented, but then how they're used and how culture can often dictate that. And, and so can you talk about some of the technologies we might encounter in the future Ghana of remote control? Yeah, um, the, the one that I love the most and that I'm most proud of is the jelly telly because I want one. <laughs> <laughs> I want someone to read about it and and make it. Um, the jelly telly is like this this it's a piece of gelatin that you stretch. However, that it can it can cover the whole entire wall or it could be small and it sticks to the wall. It's durable. It's a TV. 
<laughs> yeah. It's a TV with a really good picture. And the re the way that I came up with that was, you know, whenever we would go to um, to the village in, in southeastern Nigeria, you know, the 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 roads would often be treacherous, like the potholes from the water damage from water, from the rainy season. My God, it's like there have been times where our car has almost tipped over to the side or fallen into a ditch. Um, and especially when you get to the actual village, when the roads become dirt roads, it's really it's really something. And then you, you suddenly emerge and you see all these beautiful mansions that that, the, you know, that everyone's built in these places because it's like your ancestral homeland. And so I always thought and every time we go there, like there would be people with these flat screen TVs. And I'm like, how do they get that here? How do, you get, how do you get that here? You know, and I was just fascinated with that idea. So then I just started thinking about, you know, a flat screen TV that that could just that could deal with that kind of journey and have no problem. So that's where the, the jelly telly came from. And then there's also um, in remote control, the prayer shacks, which there weren't too many of those in the story, but you know, that was part of the world. That's always been part of the world. And I, I wish I could have gotten them in more, but just there's no reason, but like the prayer shacks are these, these portable, um, they're portable rooms and they are there for when people want to pray, you know, they want to pray. You go inside and all of the Wi-Fi, all the connections, everything cut off. Like you can't, you cannot, it's complete silence in there. There's nothing that can get through um, through a prayer shack, and so the the floor is covered with you know oriental rugs and all of that. It's it's very clean and and nice, but yeah, it's it's for it's for um, it's for prayer, especially um, you know people moving through who have to do do their um, their either their morning, afternoon, or or evening prayer, all of that. So yeah, so things like that, and it, and it takes into consideration the culture of the area. Yeah. Well, when we think of our 14-year-old Muslim girl protagonist, Fatima, who becomes Sankofa when she gains her powers, um, what is the significance for you of naming her Sankofa in, in that name change? Yeah, yeah. that's um, Names are always important to me. Like every name that you find in anything that I write, there is a reason. It may not be a reason you can predict or understand, but there is always like every name whenever I'm writing, it's like, oh man, whenever I get to having the name of character, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to, either I know it right away or I'm going to have to stop and then let that marinate or the character is named name for a while because I need to let it come to me. So it's the, the names are always very significant. And I, and I like to lean towards African names or whatever names of the culture. Um, Cause I know that, you know, readers are always like, oh, I can't pronounce this name. And so I say, blah, 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 when I'm reading it. And I think we need to get over that. But um, yeah, so Sankofa, when everything, when things happen, <laughs> when things happen, um, she renames herself. She forgets her name and she renames herself. This idea of naming yourself. And if you know me, you, you know that's, a significant, <laughs> that's an important practice. Um, so she renames herself and it's Sankofa. And Sankofa means to look back. It is the, the Sankofa bird is a Ghanaian symbol. It's um, I have I actually have one somewhere around here where it's a it's a bird that's looking over its shoulder and there's an egg behind it and it's getting the egg. So it, this idea of knowing where you came from so that you know where you're going that's really the metaphor behind it. And so Sankofa she has this ability. She is the 
adopted daughter of death, that's in quotes, um, and she has this ability to take life. And so it's like, it, it's, there are multiple levels that the, that the name is working on. Like in the story, it's because her brother was carving a, uh, a Sankofa bird from wood. And that's one way that she holds on to her brother. But on a metaphorical level, it's this idea that she sends people back. She, sends, she, she takes people's lives and she sends them back. And when you send them back, they go and find their source so that they can go forward. So it's a, kind of a spiritual, it has a spiritual meaning as well. It made me think of, I don't know, for some reason, the Sankofa made me think of a lot of things about your work at large also. Because if we thought mm-hmm. about the, the bird is, is looking back to get the egg, but its feet are facing forward. So yeah. as, as you say, it's... Um, about um, looking back in order to move forward. And there's some sort of connection between um, the past and the future that I feel like is really um, repeated in, and obviously in very different ways and across your books. But I think of how the mysterious seed that sets the quest of the story in motion is both something that comes from space, from aliens, mm-hmm. and also at the same time comes from a tree that it's magic, <laughs> but that it's magic is both natural and alien and technological, but also that aliens are themselves natural in this world. So you could say Sankofa's power is derived from a seed or an alien, a tree or a technology. And similarly in, in Binti, how there's an ancestral code pattern into her hair. Mm-hmm. that speaks of her family's bloodline and it's braided into the history of her people. And yet in her journey to become who she is, this most integral part of herself becomes literally alien. Uh, and yet at the same time, that new part of herself is essential to who she is. I don't know if I'm yeah. saying that right. You're saying it perfectly. These are, and I, it, I'm just so happy that you're saying this. I'm like, okay, I conveyed it. I did it because those are really hard. You know, they're 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 complex ideas to portray and and like um and and keep the story moving. So I'm I'm very happy happy that you that you picked up on all of that. Yeah, yeah. The past, present, and the future, and how they play off of each other, and how they propel each other is a very important theme to me. Um, that yes, the idea of this alien seed and that's that falls from the sky. Um, I don't want to get too many too many things, but that falls from the sky and that is given to her by a tree that is rooted in the earth, you know. And, and then the blending and the um, uh, God, I want to say not synergy, but like the this the the blending the blending of all of those those ideas and those are, are and those creating. Um, and those affecting and infecting this character in, in ways where sometimes it's uh, um, it's asked for and other times it's not. The same thing with Binti that you you know those those themes are definitely uh, definitely in there and they were intentional. Um, like Binti's change and, and the, the idea of like she literally she's a daughter of the soil. She's a daughter of the soil. Binti means uh, it means daughter. You know, like like her name it means girl and daughter. Like that was even one of the 
one of my primary primary ideas when I wrote Binti was that one, I wanted her to be an average girl. I did not want her to be special, even though people already read her as she's special or whatever. But I think anyone who's the main character is special. But like, so she's a daughter of the soil. She literally puts soil on her body. That is part of her culture. And then she goes on this journey where we understand that it's not literally the soil that is her identity. It is more, it is far more than that. And like, you know, so, so th that idea of change and evolution and becoming, just that idea of becoming is very, it's, it's really important to me because I, like, I've re I revisit it over and over and over again. I revisit it in um, the Akata series as well. Um, in my forthcoming adult novel, Nor, I revisit it again. Like that, that idea of the becoming across, um, across the journey is really important to me. Mm. Well, I want to I want to connect that to something you talked about with LeVar Burton and in your recent conversation, which I loved, which was your love of insects, which goes back to your childhood. And in your memoir, insects are the main thing that you hallucinate when you're on pain medications uh, post-surgery. But with LeVar, you say something interesting to me that somehow feels connected to this, uh, that what we were just talking about, that you don't try to find points of commonality with you and insects to try to find, you don't try to find the human overlap with the insect worldview. Instead, you're happy to allow them to be truly other and to be alien on their own terms. And I loved how he then earnestly suggested that you should be on any team put together to converse with aliens on first contact, which I think is really true. And hopefully we can get some momentum going with that. Yes. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I also wondered if, if this willingness to allow insects to be themselves without trying to anthropomorphize them or to understand them or to make them more familiar to you, to wonder beside them, for instance, for what they are. Um, is, does that extend to the way your characters themselves become other to themselves and also then othered as they embrace their otherness? Because there are parts of them that they don't understand, but they learn how to sort of um, cohabitate with. Yeah, yeah, that's that's another big one for me. That the idea of of uh, embracing the embracing self, embracing that which you don't necessarily understand, but it is yours regardless. You know, I think that's an important lesson in general. I think a lot of people can can benefit from that and would be much, much, much happier if they did. I think a lot of that also, um, I think a lot of that also comes from, you know, my own, my own experience with one paralysis and then, um, you know, being paralyzed and then just having this strange body, the strange body. And it does, it doesn't fit any any norms, it doesn't even fit the abnorms. Like, you know, you, you know how you could read about, okay, there's this condition, Let, let's learn about this condition. My condition doesn't have a name. <laughs> it doesn't, it's, it's so specific to me that like, I can't, you know, look something up to learn more about it. So the best thing to do is to embrace it and say, okay, it's mine. And, and so therefore I'm gonna choose like the way that I'm gonna move forward is with, you know, as what this is, as opposed to trying to force myself to be something else and, and to be this thing that doesn't quite, um, that, that is not quite me. So I think that like with these characters, 
um, there is definitely like that's that's something that's that's really important. You can see it with yeah, you can see yeah, you see it with all my characters. <laughs> it's all of them. Well, I, mean, I was I gonna like, uh, yeah. no, I was gonna ask you about you yourself. And you already answered this question, but I was thinking of Ngozi in your comics, the Nigerian girl who is in a wheelchair and who bonds herself physically to the alien symbiotic organism Venom in order to be able to walk. And I was made me wonder about the hardware in your back yeah. post-surgery, something that is alien to you that is now very much part of you. If there was a self-conception of yourself as being... Uh, hybrid in this way, alien and natural and technological and um, organic. There was a lot of me in that character. <laughs> There's a lot, lot of me in that character. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of, there was wish fulfillment as well. And like, I really thought hard about that character. I know there, there were some people who are upset. They're like, okay, you have a um, you have a character who can't walk and she uses a wheelchair and then you gave her this magical alien to, and suddenly she can walk. And I'm like, you didn't think that through. You didn't think your criticism through enough. One, you know, this idea of like, what, what's wrong with a little um, wish fulfillment? And, and I think it's also people assuming that, that, that I'm speaking from the point of view of, of people who have no, um, you know, have no, for lack of a better term, I don't want to, anger anyone but like who have no disabilities you know I do you know so so this idea of sudden her suddenly being able to not just walk but fly and do all these things was was like it was fun it was fun to write but also in writing her I knew that even that in her mind even when Venom you know when she becomes when she bonds with Venom and they become this one thing, right? Who who can who can shape shift and walk and 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 run and fly all these things? Um, but she knows that she know she knows who what she is. So she knows that she can't walk. You know, she knows that she she's still what she is, and that's not a and that's not a problem. So she's accepted that, but she's also able to do this over here. So it's it's a it's 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 further down the path than I think than I think people were giving me giving me credit for with that. And yeah. so, yeah, that was, that was very intentional. It was very intentional. Yeah. Well, I want to stay one more beat with hybrid identities and maybe connect back to what you said at the beginning about you not being as a Nigerian American, not totally fitting in, in Nigeria, but as a African American, literally an African American, but not an African American descendant from stolen Africans. You're not of the same culture either of other African-Americans. But it made me think of your personal story, the way when I think of the hybrid identities in a lot of your work, I think of in your memoir um, about how your your family was the first black family to move into a, uh, the suburban Chicago neighborhood when you were a child and how you and your sister were racially terrorized by older white kids through a lot of your childhood but also the flip side of you going to Nigeria, which was crucial to you being connected to and deepening your connection with your culture, but you were also othered there mm -hmm. as an American um, for someone who wasn't speaking fluent Igbo, um, who, didn't, who didn't fit. And in your work, there's often this question of two homes or perhaps no home. And I think of, again, Akata Witch, 
an American girl with Nigerian parents who moves to Nigeria so that she to develop magical powers. So there's that othering. But she's not just othered as a Nigerian-American in Nigeria. She's also albino. And on top of that, there's a taboo about witches in Nigeria that makes centering one as the hero of a story troublesome to some Nigerian readers. And then Binti, who comes home to reconnect after being the first person in her tribe to go to another planet to university, but her hair is now tentacles. And Sankofa used, used to be called Fatima before she became the adopted daughter of death. And she accidentally wipes out her hometown, including her family, before she understands her own powers. But she, she too ultimately returns home. Yeah. So what is home seems to be the question many of these books are asking. So I was hoping maybe we could just dwell another minute with hybrid identity and relationship to home. Yeah. Yeah, it's this is a this is a another one like another of my of my central themes. The what is home, and can you like and can you have multiple homes? Um, like these are questions. But like even above that, I think that that what I'm what I most the idea that I most want to push is don't turn away, like don't turn away. Um, even when home is problematic, and boy, I'm I'm working on um, the third Akata book, and I, I can. There's definitely a scene where it's like the don't turn away thing, um, like deal with home, deal with home, even if home isn't home. Like that, that is that is something that uh, is really, really important to me. I think that a lot of it has to do with like on like on a personal level, um, the going home, going home if we're talking about like, um, you know, I was born, born here and, and my parents have been taking us back from a young age and those trips, even though the, those trips, I remember them as being a dream. Like they're just, God, there's just paradise, especially when I was little. Um, but there were problems too. There were difficulties. There are, there were, there were cultural, there was a lot of cultural conflict a lot of it. And so where, where I could have easily been that one who just turns away from is like, this is too much trouble. I can't deal with this. I don't deserve to be judged like this. I would have had a right to say all those things, definitely. But I don't, you know, I don't deserve to be judged like this. I'm, I don't have to do this. So I'm just not going to come here. Like my sisters and I, and I always say my, we're one year apart. Um, I'm the youngest. And then we're, then my middle sister and then my oldest. So we always kind of moved as a, a unit, but like we were, you know, we would always have these, these, like really these cultural moments where we're just butting heads directly with culture. I'm talking about um, things with relatives and, and um, patriarchy, all these things, just butting heads with it. But we would always come back. Like we would always go back. We, we, we would leave and be like, I'm never going back again. This was just, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. But we would always go back because it's home, you know? And, and so like, even you know that 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 whole idea of don't turn away and you deal with it, you face it, um, you understand it, is is something that, it, but also protecting yourself as well. Like it, it's it's something that you know I've I've definitely dealt with um, in all of my stories. I mean, yeah, you definitely see it with 
with um, with Sankofa, um, you know, when you when you think about like wh- why does she do what she does? Like why does she make the decisions that she makes? This idea that you have to deal with home even when you when you when it's dark, like the things that you're dealing with are dark. You always have to come home because it's like that's the the only way you can know yourself that you can fully fully truly know yourself. It's, it comes back to the Sankofa. The, yeah. the Sankofa symbol of looking back and understanding that in order to go forward. Well, I'm glad you brought up the patriarchy because I wanted to talk about that in relationship to remote control. Years ago when I had Joe Walton on the show, she talked about how George Eliot, the author of Middlemarch, had in her mind a science fictional way of thinking, even though she wrote before science fiction. And she mentioned how Eliot had engaged with and envisioned all the unseen ways the technology of the railroad had changed things for women. That a journey that would have been a three-day journey prior to the railroad and would have required protection for a woman if she didn't want to be killed or raped suddenly could be done alone. And the ways that the world changed because of this was something that interested Elliot and made Joe Walton feel like she not only had a science fictional um, way of thinking, but that if science fiction had existed, perhaps she would have been writing in that mode. Sankofa is a 14-year-old girl and perhaps an unusual protagonist for a story that is a road novel in a way as, as she walks alone without human protection. But in this case, she's ultimately safe and free and she's protected by the fear people have of her as the adopted daughter of death. So even though no animals and insects are disturbed as she moves through the world, and even as she moves through the world with a fox accompanying her, she's the harbinger of human death. And one thing that is interesting about this is is simply the way, by making the people respect her because of their fear, she's able to move through the world almost as how we might imagine a woman might move through the world if there were no patriarchy or like that's the way I read into it. So she can go places alone, even though she's not yet an adult woman and her every decision, large and small doesn't have to be consumed with how to avoid being killed or assaulted by someone. I was hoping maybe you could just talk about the power of this in this book in relationship to gender. Yeah, it's a, it it's deep because it's like she has this ability that like that caught her her reputation precedes her. Like people know who she is. They fear her coming. She's this little girl, you know, and she wears traditional clothes. She wears whatever she wants, but she likes to wear these traditional clothes like her mother. And wherever she goes and even like I remember being inspired by um the wire, um, Omar, Omar Little in the in the wire. There's a scene, and you can find it on YouTube where Omar's coming, and everyone's going into their they're they're calling out his name as he's as he's coming. You know, his name is echoing ahead of him, and people are going inside, and people are grabbing their kids and and leaving, and you know, and there's the power of that. I remember, I, first of all, he was one of my favorite characters, but like the power of that and then to give it to this 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 girl and so like it's not only that that she cannot 
you know, she cannot be killed. Like, it's not that she's immortal. It's that people can't kill her. Um, she's clothed. People give her clothes. They know to bring her clothes. They give her food. She doesn't have to worry about any of that. They'll give her shelter. Whatever she asks for, she will get. There is nobody who is going to argue with this, with this girl. And yeah, there was, you know, that was definitely, um, that was definitely something that it's not that I was, I was uh, purposely thinking about it, but I know just this idea I've often thought about like whenever we're, we're traveling through the less urban parts of Nigeria and that feeling of your femaleness, you, you feel it, you, you feel that vulnerability. You start looking in the car who's with you. Okay. This, this man is this man. Okay. All right. You know, that feeling, and what would it be like to travel through this beautiful place and just have everything given to you and not have to worry about that? Like it, not, not just even the um, uh, rural parts of, of Nigeria, just even on the street here, you know, every woman knows the feeling of walking to your car at night when you're by yourself. That feeling like to not have that feeling Wow. And just to be able to just enjoy your, your, enjoy the night, enjoy the, the being alone and, and the, the strength of it. And so, so, so there's that, but also the fact that this girl at such a young age, when she gets this ability, she learns to embrace it early. It's not like she went through this time where she's just like, Oh, you know, I'm scared of this power. Oh, what's it going to do? She embraces that. She embraces it. She owns it and she moves and she, she, she realizes that she can and will move with, with authority, you know, okay, I can, people will give me clothes. They know what to give me. I want these things. I will ask for those things, you know? So it's like, it, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, granted her abilities are kind of, they're dark. <laughs> yes. A lot of fun. To, to to write a character who had that 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 freedom and the 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 strength and also the freedom to embrace it yeah. you know like there, it's one thing to have that the have those abilities but to in, to therefore embrace it that's yeah that's that means you've arrived so yeah that was that was definitely um a big part of the story well well to stay with Senkofa a little longer a, a couple weeks ago you retweeted some news about poverty brought on by COVID and how it's pushing some parents across Africa and Asia to marry their daughters off younger than before, essentially undoing years of activism. And you, you said, if we don't address the system on a structural level, this will continue to happen. The sacrificing of girls becomes the, the place um, if we don't look at the system. Um, and I was I was thinking of that in relationship to another thing you've talked about, and that's how there's certain knowledge that's kept secret, which is forbidden uh, for women in Nigeria. Um, for instance, the masquerade in Nigerian ritual, something that you're very interested in, mm -hmm. but no matter how many male relatives you ask, you're rebuffed about about the knowledge that that men have about the masquerade. And you say in a blog post. One day I will succeed. And then as soon as the information falls on my female ears, for such things are certainly not written down, the sky will turn black, <laughs> plants will grow underground, and babies will speak like old men. 
and then you say, I'm kidding, maybe. But but in who but in Who Fears Death, there's a character who is seeking forbidden knowledge. But in remote control, it feels almost like the reverse or the inverse, that Sankofa is is the source of a forbidden knowledge, even though she doesn't perhaps understand it yet herself. And I wondered if this was in some way a a way of addressing this structural level on a narrative plane. Yeah, I mean, Sankofa is, she, uh, so it's in the future. It's in the future. So whenever I write about these things, I always think about, okay, these things are going to get worked out. They're going to get worked out, worked in. Um, they're going to atrophy. They're going to corrupt or whatever. But, you know, these things are going to, um, these things are going to be dealt with in some way. So like, yeah, with Sankofa, Sankofa is a different type of story um, in that, yeah, she is the source. She's the beginning. She's the beginning of a tradition. Like I could see like in the future, she's going to, uh, something's going to grow from, from what she is, from what she does, from who she is. Um, she's, she literally calls it down. She's the beginning. You know, there's no one who, who she has to get these secrets from. There's no, the, the, the only ones you, she can get secrets from are aliens. You know, they're not, they're, they're no human beings. There's no culture that, that, that knows more about this than, than she would. So it's a completely different, different dynamic where she does not have to um, travel into these, um, these traditions, traditions of men to get the knowledge. And um, so, so yeah, in, in that, in that way, it's a different, it's a different story, but there is still patriarchy in, in remote control. Um, and we see it in the way that she deals with her, her brother. It's like, they're, they're very, they're very subtle, but they're there. We see it in certain characters that show up who, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away, but there are characters that show, it's, it's very, it's very subtle. It's not, you know, I didn't make it so that it was a big part of the, the what drove the plot, but you see it. You know, the, there are certain characters, certain women that she encounters where you can see that patriarchy is still alive and well, unfortunately, in this world. And, the, and there are powerful women who, who have to, who live within it and have to learn how to navigate it to, in order to be what they are, which is yeah. a theme that I like to deal with as well, because it's, it's um, I think it's very real on a very now, a now basis, like powerful women dealing with patriarchy and having to navigate it so that they can be what they will become. When you mention um, these subtle touches, I think of how on a, a big and, and obvious way, we can say that your protagonists and the agents of change in your book, the people put front and center are, are women and girls, black mm -hmm. women and black girls. But um, there's also subtle ways just like you're talking about the subtle ways there's patriarchy in this book, there's subtle ways you're um, bringing women into the narrative too. Like I think of um, Binti being a user of an astrolabe. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk about, I mean, it's not announced why she's interested in astrolabes, but there's a history in, in, in our world around them that informs your choice to have her be interested in them. Yeah, there's um, the astrolabe. What what made yeah what what brought my attention where I first learned about the astrolabe, which was I think in the Golden Compass that he he um, based the uh, alethi alethiometer. Yeah, alethiometer. 
Alethi- I'm glad I remember that. <laughs> but I, uh, he based the alethiometer on astrolabe. So like there's, so I'm sure that was somewhere in my head because I love gadgets like that. I love like things that you can hold, like, you know, cell phones, <laughs> like ancient cell phones. That's what, it, what an astrolabe basically is. It's an ancient GPS, which is so cool to me. Um, I also love um, orreries. Like just orreries are so cool. So I'm, I'm, I love those devices that measure things and just everything about them. So, um, but I had been, I was in, um, I was in the United Arab Emirates, I was in Sharjah and um, they had like a, they had a sort of a children's museum section to, for, I was there for this book festival and they had a children's museum section. And, um, you know, I go to museums. I don't care if it's for kids, I'm gonna go. So I went and all the inventors that they had listed were all men except for one. And the one, like they had um, uh, traditional Arab inventors and they were all men and except for one. And she caught my eye immediately because she was, they had all of the, the, the inventors, there were someone dressed up as each of the inventors. And so she, this woman, she was dressed up, she was wearing her veil and everything. And she was holding a giant astrolabe. And it was, a, I think her name was uh, Miriam Astrolabia or something like that. And uh, so she apparently, it wasn't, I don't think that she invented it, but she had perfected it. She was known for perfecting it. And so the fact that she was the only woman and then she has this wonderful gadget. And then I remember we, I went up to her with my daughter and my daughter got to hold it and I got to hold it and the thing was heavy and beautiful. Mm. It stuck in my mind. Like I wanted to know more about this object. And so, so just the fact that it was a woman who perfected this thing. And then the more research I did was uh, I learned, you know, I learned about it being basically this, it was like the first GPS you know, and so this idea of knowing where you were in the world, knowing your place, where you stood in the world that was perfected by a woman in an environment where there were probably no other female inventors, it was probably very taboo what she was doing, that stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And that like went right into the DNA of me uh, writing and creating Binti the character. Yeah. Well, I want to I wanna, um, talk about you writing for Black Panther. Uh, and some of the things that were you found problematic about the world of Wakanda before you began writing. Um, one of them was the focus how, on how all the stories in the Wakandan world were of the rulers, of the aristocracy. And part of what you did was move the attention to the everyday people when you started writing in that universe. And it feels like you're doing that here, too with Sankofa, who, who becomes quite powerful, but begins as an everyday girl Mm -hmm. with no, um, she doesn't have an aristocratic background, um, or claims to one. And I, I wondered if this was in all connected to something you've also mentioned in interviews is that there's a phrase among the Igbo people that Igbo have no royalty. And if those are connected, could, could you just talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, that's that's a common phrase, you know, amongst the Igbo people, you know, that we have no kings. And and so like so I've grown up hearing that and understanding that and agreeing with that, you know, and I've never I, I just I've always wondered about stories that always I'm like, why does the story always have to focus on um, the, the, the king or the queen or the royalty or the people with power, the people with money like those, those stories did not interest me. 
little story. I, I, I always wanted to know what was happening with the villager outside, you know, who, who was trying to get by. I wanted to know those stories. I wanted to know the story of those who um, received some kind of great power and they're, you know, they're just an average person. That's the kind of story that I've, that I've always wanted to, um, that I've always wanted to hear. And yeah, with, with, um, with Wakanda, that was always, you know, I, I wanted to know what the Wakandans were doing and what they thought of things and how they felt about the, you know, and it just, it seemed odd that we'd have a monarchy in such a modern and futuristic society. It didn't, it, it, it made sense in the structure of um, looking at Africans from a, an outsider point of view, you know, Africans have kings, but not all Africans have king. Like royalty is not the only um, ruling structure or, or um, I don't even like the word ruling, but the only governmental structure. You know, the Igbos were very democratic. You, they, you, you have different, different pockets so that they weren't united. And that, was, that led to a lot of problems, but it also led to a lot of good things too. But like, um, yeah, so, so it just, I've always kind of pushed back against that. Um, and, and, and that was one of the reasons why, because I remember when I was, when I was asked to write um, T'Challa in um, The Black Panther, I, I had hesitated and I'm like, I need to think about this. It wasn't like I was like, oh yes, I will do this immediately. It wasn't like that. I hesitated for two weeks. I thought about it for two weeks because I wasn't sure what I could bring to the narrative and also I had some issues with the with that structure. I'm like, how can I write in this when I have such a problem? And then once I looked at the, the character of T'Challa and his um, constant conflict with the individual versus what is expected of him, that was the end that I could find where I could relate and like where I could understand him and where he became interesting interesting to me where he's dealing with this is what I want to be as a person and this is what I was born into and they were always in conflict with with each other and um so that was once I once I kind of focused on that and and just kind of burrowed into that idea then I could write it yeah. then I could you know it, it just made sense and I, I knew what I could bring to the narrative well if we were to take this idea of decentering authority and decentering royalty into the world of writing through much of your writing education you are actively discouraged by your teachers to not write science fiction and fantasy and to not even bring it to your classroom and you you um you've talked about attending the clarion writers workshop which is geared towards science fiction and fantasy as being a pivotal moment for you and I guess I wanted to hear a little bit about, and I'm sure our listeners will want to hear about what was different about workshopping your work in the Clarion setting versus when you were in a non-genre academic setting where even before someone has looked at your story, they've sort of put an asterisk there that there's something wrong with it. Yeah. Oh God, it was such a big deal. That was such a big deal for me because I was coming from academia where I had to hide under the veil of magical realism. <laughs> you know, I'm writing this, this crazy stuff, you know, I, I just, and it wasn't like I was trying, I was writing from the heart. I was writing 
these are just the stories that came came through from the very first story that I wrote. And I did not put a label on anything that I was writing. I didn't say, oh, this is fantasy. Oh, this is science fiction or whatever. You know, I just was writing these stories and they had these mystical elements in them and they were strong. And the more I wrote, the stronger they grew. And I was enjoying myself, but I was being, yeah, I was actively being told, oh, you're such a great writer. Um, but you know, the science fiction and fantasy stuff isn't isn't real literature, you know. And and these were from professors that I loved and respected and was learning, and I learned so much from them about the craft of writing. But they were saying this. Um, I'm hard-headed and I knew, you know, I, I've always written what I want to write. And so that saved me because if I were any, if I were any softer, I don't know why I would have been writing some literary stuff with no plot. You know, that kind of thing. And I, that wasn't where I, you know, that wasn't going to happen. So, so I, I got through that, but I was still, there was a feeling of, um, I'm writing these, these narratives, I'm writing about this, this woman in the pre-colonial Nigeria who has the ability to fly and she's being ostracized by her community. Like I wasn't being under, like what I was writing was not being properly understood. It was very strange my my classmates enjoyed what I was writing, but it was it stood out. It definitely stood out. Um, and the feedback that I was getting often didn't didn't fit. You know, it, when it came to character, it was great. When it came to plot, it was not. Mm. So you know, I, I I felt this way. And so when I when I graduated, um, this was between my my second masters, my second masters, and my. Um, yeah, right before I right before I went back for my master's in literature, um, the, it was now it was Nello Hopkinson who told me about the Clarion Writers Workshop, and it changed so much for me. I'm so glad that that like I had read Midnight Robber and I had recently met Nello, and it was just it was huge. Re reading Midnight Robber, I was like, oh my god, this is what people are doing. This this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. And um, so I got into a conversation and she's like, you should go to Clarion. I'm like, what's well, Clarion? And I, I looked it up and learned about it and, and applied. And then I got into it. So when I went to Clarion, it blew my mind because one, the writers were fantastic and they were all for, from all walks of life, all, like a whole spectrum of ages. There was one 12 year old genius kid wow. who was right. Like this stuff was good too. I remember <laughs> his stuff was good. And then there was a, um, like much like much old like you know in their 50s and 60s you know so there it was it was across the uh the age range and then like the people were writing so one guy was writing like insect porn and another guy you know and then other people were writing and there was one writer who she was writing like stuff with from with hoodoo and new orleans you know deep south um, mysticism. She was amazing. So, and then there was one NASA guy who was there and it was great. You know, I was around all these weird people who had these big ideas about story and, and the, and you know, the, the stories were good, like consistently good. Like that was the first time I encountered that yeah. where the story that we read every time we met, they were consistently good. And, um, it was at Clarion where I really first finally accepted what I was. <laughs> it was at Clarion. I'm like, okay, I don't know if this is science fiction or fantasy or whatever, but I am in this. You know, this these are these are like I'm I'm writing this is where people were reading what I was writing and they weren't saying this is some madness. You know, they got it. 
they got it. They didn't get like all the cultural stuff, but they were understanding it in a way that was just a relief for me. So yeah. Clarion, I didn't realize how much I needed Clarion until I went to Clarion. Like I needed that so, so badly. Well, how early or late in your life did you come across your first women-centric or Black-centric science fiction fantasy stories as a reader? It was just, uh, I think, first it was Nello, Nello Hopkins. Like, so this was in 2000, it was late. In my opinion, this was late. So this was like in 2000, 2000 or 1999, that year, because first I discovered Nello's, um, Nello Hopkinson's work, and and then I discovered Octavia Butler. I'm tell- I discovered Octavia Butler so late. Oh my god! <laughs> I didn't know she was, like. And it was at Clarion. That's the crazy thing. It was at Clarion where like um, we were in it. We the group had gone to this bookstore, and I saw for the first time a book that was face facing outward in the science fiction and fantasy section that had a black woman on the cover. You know, like when I discovered Nalo's book, it was to the side. This one was facing outward, and I'm like, "There's a there's a black person on the cover," and I immediately bought it. I bought it. I didn't know who Octavia Butler was at all, but I bought it. And that book turned out to be Wild Seed. And I opened it up and started reading it. And the character is Nigerian, and she's her name is Anyawu, which I know exactly what Anyawu means, you know. And it's in pre-colonial Nigeria. I was like, my mind was blown. I was hooked, and that was a big deal because I'm like, I didn't know. I was at that time. The, the story that I was workshopping most at Clarion was um, was about the, the one about the Nigerian woman in pre-colonial Nigeria who had the ability to fly and was was about to get kicked out, either executed or kicked out of her village. So I'm writing this thing and then I read Wild Seed. And the characters like Anyangu and the character that I was writing were so similar. And that was like the first time I saw that. And it was a, it was it was huge. It was huge for me. So in that that year, it was like Nello Hopkinson and Octavia Butler, and then later on, it was Ursula Le Guin. But so I discovered them late. It was almost like after, like after I was after I had been writing and, and writing novels and all that, I discovered them late. Which, but you know, better late than never. <laughs> and and Wild Seed is what you're adapting. Yeah. And is it actually true that you you talked with Octavia Butler about it? when when she was still alive yeah it was it was i had spoken to okay so when i was at clarion in this first conversation i remember nothing because i was so stunned to be talking to her i remember nothing that i said so when i was at clarion um i discovered that she had taught at clarion um prior i was like what is going on this is just so crazy you know i discovered this book (laughs) and i read it like overnight and then she actually was here what so then like me being the ambitious person that I can sometimes be, I was like, can you put me on the phone with her? And they're like, oh, sure. In my head, I was screaming. I'm like, what did I just do? This is crazy. So next thing you know, I'm on the phone with her. So that was the first conversation I had um, with Octavia. And I remember nothing from it. I think I said dumb, <laughs> stupid things. I really think I said dumb, stupid And then um, later on, like a few years later, I spoke with her again and I I had questions about Wild Seed. And, you know, this is way before, of course, years and years before I was adapting it. I was just I just had questions um, because I was always fascinated that um, that any science fiction author of her caliber and who was African-American would write about 
you know, evil people. I was fascinated by that and I love that. And I just wanted to know more. I wanted to dig into her brain more about that. Yeah. Like, well, why'd you write about the evos? <laughs> Tell me. So, That's amazing. So, yeah, it was really, and so I asked her some questions and, and some of those things, some of her responses to those questions are what I'm using for the adaptation now. Wow. Because like, you know, there are things that I asked her. I'm like, this is, you know, now I'm just like, man, I'm glad I asked her because now I can, I can incorporate those into the, you know, the script. Yeah. I can't wait for that. Um, do you have a date? No date yet, but we are um, currently working on the second, um, second episode, the, uh, the script for the second episode. So it's like, I'm learning that sometimes things aren't officially greenlit. You just keep going. Yeah. You know, you, you just keep going and you're like, is anyone going to say something? And, and no one says anything. And then just, you just keep going. So yeah, that's what's happening with Wild Seed. Well, I want to ask you about corporate and governmental power in remote control and some of your other work. Uh, one of the, one of the reasons you're, your family stayed in the United States, as you mentioned, was because of the Biafran War, mm-hmm. a war where up to 2 million Biafrans died of starvation due to the Nigerian naval blockade, where as many as 4 million people were displaced, and where genocide against the Igbo people in northern Nigeria in particular was one of the catalysts for it, with up to 50% of the victims in the anti-Igbo pogroms being children. And another reason for the war was oil and a battle of control for oil. And and you've confronted these issues in various ways in your writing, both the Biafran War itself and Nigeria's production and extraction of oil as the largest producer of oil for Africa and a historically significant exporter to the United States. And when I think of the Niger Delta being at the same time one of the great sites in the world of biodiversity and also one of the great sites of numerous ongoing oil-related environmental disasters. I wondered about this in relationship to remote control and the authorities who want to control the magic seed that has given Sankofa her power and also how Sankofa can move through the world without disturbing anything non-human so much so she's even followed by animals. But yet whenever she touches human technology, it stops functioning, which is why we have a character who's walking everywhere. So talk to us about the afterlives of the oil wars or the Biafran war, if any, in remote control, particularly around questions around the authorities, whether they're corporate or governmental, that want to control this alien yet tree-centric magic artifact. And I mean, we have the sense we don't, I have a, I have a sense in my body that they don't, they don't want to control it for good. We don't really have that spelled out for us, but um, talk to us a little bit about this. Yeah. The, Oh man, that's so much. Um, and, and all that was so, uh, so on point the presence of oil and the need for oil and what that has led to and, 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 and corporations and, and hmm, it's so much. Um, and that's something, yeah, it's, it's looming. It's looming in the background with remote control. Um, it's because 
remote control is part of a bigger universe that I'm writing. And in that universe, these corporations are definitely um, making moves around the world and dabbling in things and understanding things and understanding the powers um, that are on the earth, the powers of people, the powers of things that they're understanding them and they are gathering them and um, seeking to weaponize them and use them for their own good. So that is always a, that's a presence in, in remote control. That is a presence. That's part of a, like the driving force of, of the plot, even though it remains in the background in the original, um, in, in the original iteration of this, it's more in the foreground, but it's more in the background now. Mm -hmm. So it's like the, the way when you read it, you'll just feel you're like, okay, this corporation is there, <laughs> you know, they're there. And, and the reason why it feels that way is because they're, yes, they are very much, um, pushing things and manipulating things and influencing things and seeking and seeking and seeking. Um, and so like this overarching idea of um, viewing the African continent as something to mine things from, mm -hmm. as a place to mine things from, is it like an overarching uh, theme or idea that that's above the, the story or even a thread or something that's even underneath the story you know, this idea of mining. And so like, uh, without giving too much away, you know, that comes into play very, very um, directly in, in remote control, uh, like th this idea of mining and wanting something that's in the soil um, that, that is powerful, that they may not know exactly <laughs> how it's powerful, but they know it's powerful. And, and then in, in Sankofa herself, Sankofa herself is, is, um, under that watchful eye and it's kind of like the 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 opposite of that thing you know yeah as you said wherever she moves she she's like she doesn't disturb where she moves um and that's you know that that idea of not disturbing and 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 just being is the exact opposite of what uh these this the corporation and the corporation is almost like a metaphor for humanity in a lot of ways because yeah. it's invasive and destructive and self-serving and not understanding that um it's not always about the self and not being about the self can be about the self <laughs> you know what i mean yeah in our world ghana is one of the epicenters for um seed wars essentially of big companies like monsanto wanting to um uh, disrupt the ancestral ways of seed sharing um mm. of gathering seeds and sharing them down by by um introducing patented um gmo seeds is that is that influencing the i know it's influenced your story with i'm assuming it influenced your story that you that lavar burton read that you yes. discuss, but because uh, we get the unforeseen circumstances as well as the upsides, um, but but is it influence? Is that influencing? Is is the fact that it's a seed and it's Ghana? Is that at all related to our world as a starting point? Yeah, with with uh, with remote control, it's like because I've been doing a lot of you know I've been doing a lot of research into these GMO seeds and and what's happening in Ghana and like remote control was the beginning of that like okay. the like the beginning of and that and i kind of just immediately incorporated that into my story because i was like this is this is for lack of a better word problematic um but i i can say that like in my later works it's more so 
like the, the stuff I'm working on now, definitely more so that idea of the, the, the GMO seeds and the problem of them. That's, that's a very, that's something I'm concerned with. Like, like now. Yeah. But it was like the beginning of it. Yeah. So you called yourself or you have called yourself an irrational optimist. You, you brought that up when talking to LeVar Burton and even if, and, and that you're, you're that way, even if it's becoming harder, particularly over the last four years and also during the pandemic. And I think that's obvious in your work it, that regardless of whatever difficulties or disharmonies or disasters or deaths that occur, there's also always a sense of possibility and renewal. And in your memoir, I'm thinking also of when you were talking about Frida Kahlo's paintings in general, but specifically about uh, her painting, The Broken Column, about her own injuries and hardware in her body, you, you said, I view the broken column through a skewed lens where Frida wants me to see her suffering and anguish. I also see a woman who has become more because of that suffering and anguish. I don't see a stone column for a spine. I see a column of steel. The cracks in it make her more flexible. I don't see nails. I see sensors that detect the world around her, bringing her more information than any purely organic human being. I see a cyborg. And I wanted to ask you, sort of in light of this, but, but instead of asking you about optimism, I wanted to ask you about two emotions that Americans often considered negative emotions, but I wanted to see how they relate to or don't relate to your narratives. One of them is anger. And I think of how Binti returns home because she feels like she's full of toxic anger and she needs to go through a, a coming of age pilgrimage to cleanse herself of it. But I also think of how Sankofa wipes out her town and wonder if there's, it's not stated I don't even know if it's suggested, but I, I wondered if there was something in her, something even unknown to her that is being unleashed um, that's destructive or unprocessed and so destructive. And the other, the other emotion I wanted to ask about was, was fear because you said before that your best stories often come from fear and what you're afraid of. So maybe you can use remote controls a lens if you want but could you could you talk about anger and fear in relationship to story making for you gosh anger is 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 a theme that's in almost everything that i've written it's um it's a uh i i don't know the way that i see anger and i think this may come from it may come from uh like my my childhood and my days of as an athlete like the role that anger plays because anger can be, if it's harnessed properly, can be, can be very powerful and very useful on the tennis court. If you get angry, it can, it could muddle your brain where you stop concentrating, you end up losing to someone that you're way better than it can easily do that. But if you focus that anger and, and you like, and you channel it toward, you, you channel it into, in, in a, in a way that's useful, you will end up like, God, it's like just this big, giant burst of energy. Um, and, and it's very useful. And I, and I learned, so I learned that from a young age, the uses of anger, the, uh, the positive uses of anger. So like, you'll, you will find that in, and, and also like, man, I, you know, 
I used to get really mad. <laughs> so there's that. There's that. I would get really angry and I would be, I used to fight a lot from the age of, from the age of, uh, up to the age of 12, where I realized, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. Like, but before that, I would fight. And when I would fight, I would like, I was like a shark, you know, when sharks are having a feeding frenzy and their eyes roll back and they're just gone. Wow. I was that kind of fighter where <laughs> I would just be gone. You know, I would be, I will just, you, you, once I get to that point, you are done. And it doesn't matter if you were bigger than me. It just, no. So, so I had that. So I, so like that reveling in the anger you know, knowing like what it feels like. Cause I remember, even though I stopped at the age of 12, I remember how satisfying fighting was. <laughs> it was really satisfying. I enjoyed it. I will say this, I could say this. Okay. Cause I stopped fighting when I was 12, but I enjoyed it. So, you know, so I, 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 I'm, I also understand. So there's the use of anger, um, but the, also the joy of it, the reveling of it, the, the it felt great. Um, yeah, and like that, I think I, I channeled that in, in sports as well. Like I really enjoyed. If I get mad, I just revel in the the physicality of it. So, so I'm coming from that. So in my stories, you'll find several like, gosh, you'll see Onye Sonwu. She definitely has some anger, some anger, anger issues, and you can see how she deals with those and how she channels it. And you can also see the consequence of it. Um, and you'll see that in, um, in, in the Akata series, Sunny Fights as well. And I, I've, those scenes are easy to write <laughs> for me. They're really easy to write. But she fights as well. You know, when she's being bullied, she is not the type of kid who would sit back and be bullied. She'll fight you. She'll fight all of you. So, you know, Sunny does that. And, and, and in that, she, she learns something about herself as well. She faces some things. In, in remote control, in that moment, where uh, where the car accident happens, you know, in that moment, um, there's, I wouldn't say it, it was it was like an, an anger in her, but there might have been, you know, there the the, the kernels were definitely there because she had like, you know, she was dealing with those the the requests of her brother, and 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 see that's where the patriarchy thing is that so there's this the hierarchy that's her brother, you know, and he asks her to grasp a a, a wasp. And see what that feel, you know. See if that triggers your 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 abilities. Grasp. So she's used to him doing that to her. She's had to deal with that. And I'm sure that deep down, before she can even like, she's not even old enough to figure to understand that this is pissing her off. This is building up in her. So when that happens, you know, I think the 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 pain of it. Um, the shock of it and the anger of it, um, I, I could definitely see that playing a role in, in what ends up happening. Uh, in terms of in terms of fear, like it's it's very similar with fear. These are these are two kinds of these are two emotions that inspire what I write. I will say it's not that I'm just going around angry and like oh I'm gonna sit down now I'm gonna write because I'm mad. Sometimes <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I want the live feed of you doing your writing in that mode. <laughs> it, is, it has happened. I will say, okay, I'm going to own it. I'm okay. going to own it. Yes. Um, but like fear, fear, like that, that, and I've said it before that when something scares me, I know that I should, that's something I, sh that, that's something that I should write. Um, the idea of Sankofa, oh boy, of, of Sankofa, she comes from this wonderful family and full of love and all of that. 
and for this thing to happen. That's terrifying to me. And then she has to find her way at that age. Like that is terrifying. And I knew like when I wrote it, I'm like, this is, this is really, this is really dark. And like, I didn't like to be in that. I didn't enjoy being in that, but I knew that because I, because it was so terrifying to me to write, um, I knew it was something, I knew it was something to write. Who Fears Death? Just fear is all over that one and me facing fear. Uh, Binti, the fact that it's in space, I'm terrified of space. I'm terrified of outer space because you die there. That's all you're supposed to do as a something from earth is you die. And so I've never written anything set in space. And, and so that was like, when I thought, I'm like, okay, I'm scared of writing in something set in space. I guess I, guess I have to do it. Mm. So it's like, that I've often used, like fear is a beacon for me, like a creative beacon. So if I'm, if I'm afraid of it, I'm now like as a, a, a seasoned writer, I understand if I'm afraid of writing something, I should write it. Like yeah. I should. And it's not, uh, even if it doesn't feel all that great, <laughs> yeah. I should do it. Well, another way you turn fear and, and pain into something positive in the memoir, other than the meditation on Frida Kahlo, is when you talk about the Japanese art of kintsugi, or golden joinery, where a broken object is repaired, but the cracks are preserved as gold, rather than erasing the evidence of it being broken in the first place. And it feels in a way like you had a superpower as an athlete with your 114 mile per hour serve, (laughs) but then you turned your unasked for cracks into another superpower. And there's a there's a term in, in the Binti trilogy called treeing, which describes a power of sorts, a mathematical trance that Binti goes into. But the term originates from your days as an athlete, a term in tennis when, if I understand it correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, a tennis player goes unconscious and one's game goes to another level and one can almost anticipate what's going to happen next. Um, and it feels sort of like your writing career has been treeing as of late, hitting on all cylinders, that you've amassed this incredible, almost supernatural momentum, so much so that I don't think people would be surprised that LeVar Burton calls you the busiest writer he's ever known. So I'm, I'm, I'm both scared to ask what you're working on now, but also really want to know what you're working on now. Oh boy. It's a, I'm working on a lot. I, I definitely like the idea of treeing is actually a really good term because treeing is like you're, you're, you're playing out of your mind. It's, it's unconscious. You it's, it's, you're guided by something else and you're just going with it. And when you, it's like, it's like there being a, uh, um, you're, you're underground and there's a tunnel there that just keeps appearing and you just keep following it even though you don't know where it's going that's what's happening Mm. that's like it's so it's so true um what am I working on now how do I like typically whenever someone asks me this I rarely get through the list it's that much like (laughs) there are things that I can't um there are things that I can't announce yet you know but like we'll start with start with those tell us about those okay the things that I can't (laughs) announce well, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> but like, okay, so I'm working, so I'm working on the third, the third volume in the Akata series. So there's that. And, and that's really thanks to this horrible pandemic. 
you know, like I haven't been able to travel since March. Before that, I was traveling everywhere. And once I was forced to stay in one place, which I was not happy about, and I'm still not happy about, still not, um, I got, you know, I just started writing. I, I, I knew I was going to start writing it. I meant to start writing it in the fall, but I just started writing it. And I, you know, it poured, it just poured out of me in such an easy deluge. It's, it was crazy. I, I couldn't believe how, and I had so many other things that I was doing and I still, you know, I, I still was able to write that. So like now I'm in the editing process of that. Like it's, it's a complete with beginning, middle, and now I'm just editing the thing. Um, so there's that. And then um, I also finished a, an adult novel called Nor, which is going to be published by Daw. And um, that one, you know, I've been working on that one for, for some years. It's been like maybe four, four years. Um, so there's that. I didn't expect to finish that either. There's a secret project. <laughs> 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 there's the secret project. I'm waiting until we can announce that one because that was yeah. a lot of fun. Um, so there's a secret project. So there's that. And then the, in terms of the, the TV slash film stuff, we've got, um, you know, I'm adapting Wild Seed with Winnerika Hiu. We're, you know, we're, we're now working on the second, the second episode. And then um, I'm, ad I'm adapting uh, Binti, the Binti series with, um, and that's been, that's being uh, produced by Media Res, which is amazing. And then they're like, okay, there are, there are four other projects. <laughs> there are four, four other projects in that realm. Yeah. That I'm that I'm working on. Yeah. So so at the end of this pandemic, are, are, is there a hammock on some island somewhere for you with your name on it? You know, that actually that that's actually a really good idea. Like when when we finally get through all this and I do believe we'll get through this. Um probably probably not as soon as we think, but it will it's it's eventual, but when that happens, yes, I at, at some point I will take a a break. I will take a break. But right now, it's like it's not that I I'm a workaholic or anything like that. It's just that the stories are just blooming from me. They're blooming, and and I enjoy writing. I enjoy creating. I enjoy the process. All of that stuff. Oh, and also, um, Who Fears Death is being developed by HBO. So there's that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoy like all the the different types of writing. You know, I enjoy the I enjoy the writing prose. I enjoy screenwriting. I enjoy um, doing comics. All of that. It's just like all the different types of writing is it, it feeds me because I think I have a very like the way that I, I storytelling is storytelling, but I also just like doing a lot of different things. I do, and I and I think I like the there's some part of me that I think likes the pressure as well. Figure that I need to accept that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being on the show today, Nettie. Yeah, my pleasure. This has been great. This has been great. We were talking today to Nettie Akorafor about her latest book from Tor Books, Remote Control. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. 
You can find more of Nnedi Okorafor's work at Nnedi, N-N-E-D-I, dot com. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting Between the Covers at patreon.com slash between the covers, where you can learn more about the bonus audio archive, including readings by N.K. Jemison, Ted Chang, Carmen Maria Machado, Marlon James, and many more. Get collectible work from everyone from Forrest Gander to Nikki Finney to Ursula K. Le Guin. Become an early reader at Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of the year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, this and much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank Tor Books and Ted Books for sending me the Binti Trilogy and Broken Places and Outer Spaces, respectively, and to the Tin House team who keep the podcast afloat. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogi, and Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Vishwena Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, Isa Patita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.